Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? physically problem with my heart and my own oh. well speaking of old people you've gotta watch okay tell me about this i i looked it up and i'm like what what is even happening here okay do you know what the villages are no in florida? okay the villages is a retirement community in florida it's the largest retirement community definitely in the united states maybe in the world i'm not sure and it uh has 130,000 people live there and oh, it's gated. God. Well, it's not act technically gated, but it's considered a gated community. And they made a documentary. Apparently, the guy who made it is very young. He's not on social media. I can't find him. Lawrence Oppenheimer or Lance Oppenheimer. Okay. Oppenheim, Oppenheimer. Anyway, beautifully shot documentary, but also <clears throat> just fascinating. It chronicles these three or four people, including a couple where the the husband decided. I guess maybe later in life that he wanted to start using drugs <laughs> because he wanted to expand his mind and they never got, they never really drilled down on the drugs that he was using, but he got arrested for <gasps> having marijuana and a $5 worth of cocaine. Oh, uh, he was doing drug drugs. He was okay. really doing drugs. And, <laughs> but he was my favorite because he, his whole thing is he just wanted to get to a spiritual place quickly <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> and so there's these amazing shots of him. One of them, everybody drives <laughs> golf carts everywhere. And one of these shots, he's just screaming, <laughs> driving headlong into a sprinkler in his uh, golf cart because he wanted the feeling of this, the sprinkler on his face. Um, I love his, him already. I, I love, love him. him. He's amazing. Although it did make me think twice because I've always said if I live to be 90 or 95, I'm going to start doing heroin because you know i'm gonna go out anyway and i would never do it otherwise but this is making me rethink it because it really took a toll on his wife oh. she was really you know sh she said he was always eccentric but then he he became downright unusual he became and william s burroughs he what became william s burroughs yeah by the end of the documentary he had stopped okay. doing the drugs <laughs> and then he had to go to you imagine if he then he becomes a recovering addict and he's like, like <laughs> he's, he's like 85 years old um so that was one couple and then there was a uh, uh oh my god there's this man of course his name is dennis every every dennis out there is a ne'er-do-well this guy didn't live in the villages he lived in his van and he was hoping to snag a rich lady so that his whole thing was about and there's this scene and it's, it's just so poetic he's lying down i don't know how this uh, cinematographer got in the van lying down on the makeshift bed in his van looking up no shirt on looking up at the ceiling saying you know i just want a good looking gal who's he must have said it three times a good looking gal who's easy on the eyes who won't embarrass me oh my god and i'm like the gall of you you live in a van down by you the river live in a van and you're saying that you need a woman i mean you don't even have this woman you don't even know this woman and you're already criticizing her for embarrassing you he he finally finds one of these women that he had known before 
And she knows the deal. She knows he just wants a place to live. And he starts saying, it seems to be going all right. And then he starts saying, listen, you can either have comfort or freedom. And uh, I just don't know if I can be, uh, I don't just don't know if I can be tied down. Oh God. Go get back in your van and get Go the hell out of here. yourself, Dennis. Go drive that van off of a short pier. Yeah. I mean, the world does not need another no. Dennis. No, honestly. No, Dennis. Dennis is a, a great movie. Though. Okay. You, I think you would really like it. I'm going to watch it. I was, I was, um, gonna watch it last night and then i thought oh i better write so i did write some oh, good but for you. but i but i love the idea and i love yeah. the idea of and that's great fodder for scripts right of of, yes. of a guy who lives in the who's a drug addict who decides to become a drug user at 84 or whatever and decide and then decides not so much like after he has some run-ins with the law probably after he has some run-ins with the law they even had video of him in court and the a judge saying he was actually such a really nice guy but he got real obstreperous in the court and the judge said you are the rudest person i have ever had to deal with because he decided he was going to represent himself oh, and he no. just kept saying it was only five dollars worth of cocaine it was only five dollars cocaine and the judge is like i don't care how many dollars were it's a it's a crime sir anyway it's worth watching okay so it's called it's for people who don't know it's called not just like heaven, not far from heaven, not heaven's gate. You said it in my in my some time. kind of he- some 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 kind of heaven, some kind of heaven, something like heaven. A little, no, a little piece of heaven. <laughs> All right, some, okay. It is called some some kind of heaven. Some kind. You had it. You had it. Like some kind of wonderful, but yeah, movie, but some kind of heaven. Hey, let me run this by you. So I was thinking about um, this idea of letting go and seeing what the nets bring in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I have done that for the last, I've only done it for the last four days and the results are kind of astonishing. And like I was going to ask, well, yes, in terms of, so I said, you know what, I'm going to do that. And immediately my anxiety about not just writing, but acting started lessening. Cause I, you know, for, you know, this and, and listeners might, if they're, you know, whatever, like that I have had struggled with um, like um, stage fright, you know? And, mm-hmm. and as I said, I'm just going to let go and see what the nets bring in. I've done a lot of work on myself and on my career. My anxiety about acting decreased in terms of my state thinking of negative fantasies about screwing up on set or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I got this audition for um, a pilot that, of course, shoots in Chicago and is a recurring character. <laughs> Dude, crazy. But, somebody really wants you to live in Chicago. And I'm not going to, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yeah. But, I, I, but the character is this wild, crazy, alcoholic mother that is awesome. Anyway, the point is, do you have evidence in your life So I have evidence now that when I quote, let go, and it's not even something I'm doing in the world, it's a mental shift. Do you have uh, evidence for our listeners and for each other that when you have let go of the idea of something, something wonderful happens? That's Mm. my big, big question this morning. It's a big question. It's a great question. 
And the the automatic answer is yes, although now I'm trying to comb my failing memory. That's another topic for another day, for examples. Um, yeah, I mean, I just know that whenever I find myself with a stranglehold on something, and I usually actually notice it physically, like I, I'm physically tense trying to hold on to whatever it is that that's not where it is. And I have to stop and I have to relax my shoulders and I have to take a deep breath. Um, so just in the overarching sense of even if I'm driving and I find myself, you know, like <laughs> it, it doesn't work and it's better just to, to, to relax and come back to your center. But it kind of does tie into the thing that I was going to run by you, which is about, can you cultivate patience? Because mm -hmm. I, as we were, you and I had a, offline conversation about f me feeling like I need to make up for lost time. And so I would say I am not where you are with, with the, um, career stuff. I hope, I, I hope I aspire to be where you are because I think I'm still very much in the frame of mind of like, it's not happening fast enough. It's not, going, it's not go, it's not shooting up in the right direction. It's not, it's not, it's not instead of what it is, which is going great, actually, <laughs> you know, like it was only one year. We only started this podcast like three months ago, four months ago. We only started writing together a year ago, a little over a year ago. So like why the rush? But I do feel, I do feel this pressure of rush. I think I mostly feel it because I feel guilty that I'm spending all of this time working on something that is not earning me any money. Mm, there you at go. The, at yeah. the same time as my husband is going to work every day, working as hard as he possibly can so that I can be at home working for no money. I feel a lot of guilt about that. That makes sense. I That is a real thing. And I that has to contribute right to the making up for lost time feeling. Yes. yes. Um, I also think that it's interesting. I see the story that um, comes to mind and we can totally cut this. If you're like, no way Bosworth is the story of your was then your boyfriend and now your husband showing up in a fedora with a cigar in the rain. Yes. Once you had let go of the idea of yes. being in a relationship with him mm -hmm. and he came back in the middle of the mm -hmm. night. I have this like whole story in my head about that because you, it's very it's completely true. No, right. it's completely true. Okay. It was raining. He was wearing a fedora. He knocked on my door and the, it wasn't quite the middle of the night. It was really late at night unannounced. I had no idea. And I had been, yeah, he broke up with me. I was devastated for, two weeks. And then I just went on a tear. I started dating left, right, and center. And I think that's what he thought he was going to do. And instead he just started re regretting his decision. And yeah. And as soon as I let go of him, he showed up. Yeah. And, and then, and then there's the choice, right? So like when we let go of something and it shows back up, do we choose to let it in or do we say, actually, no, I'm, and I think that that's also a very interesting thing. It's like when I do let go of my stranglehold on my career at an audition, a big audition or something, whatever comes back, 
do I, how do I, do I embrace it? Do I, how do I approach it? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this self tape. It's going to be super what it is. This character's really, really great in some ways. And I love it and I'm going to do it. But I could say, you know what? I'm going to choose not to. It's just interesting to see Mm -hmm. when the nets come back in, do we throw the fish back out to the sea or do we eat the fish? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, but wait a minute. Why would you be seeing what the nets bring in and then be rejecting it though. Well, I think that's also a a, a product of fear. Like a lot of times I see, I've seen with people around me and former clients and things like that, that the thing that they, if they haven't, if we haven't really worked on the issue, if I haven't really addressed the issue of why the fear's there in the first place or something, I'm, I'm apt to sabotage it when the nets bring in good fish. I'm apt to say those fish aren't big enough. They're not good enough. They don't smell right. And instead now I'm, I'm really at 46 taking me to 46 to be like, no, I like what this, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to accept the fish that comes back in my net. People are going to be like, what is wrong with Jen? Why is she obsessed with fish? But the point is, the stranglehold, right, the stranglehold is real tempting because we're a do-do society and um, especially as women, especially as all kinds of things you could say especially for. But what I'm saying is for me and what you did too, you thought, oh, when the, the fish came back in the middle of the night wearing a fedora, you were like, you, did you have to think about it or was it an immediate thing? Uh, my recollection is that he I invited him inside to talk and I was just like listen whatever I don't remember the content but I said here's what went wrong or and here's and I'm kind of moving on um I think it came down to he just said will you give me another chance I mean I think he was very uh um, earnest about the fact that he he was owning up to the fact that he let me go not the other way around and that he you know he made a mistake that's a great thing that he was able to do because can you imagine if pride or whatever had gotten in the way of that trying and and look you could have said no way you could have said i'm i'm done with this but it worked out and thank Mm -hmm. gosh it did but i i just you know it's being open i guess being open to things looking a different way than i think they should look that for sure is I can really relate to my my having a tendency to reject some that whole thing. I wouldn't be a part of any club that would have me as a member. Once somebody does accept me, I'm like, but why? What's wrong with you that you want to accept me? And that's something I would very much like to get over. <laughs> me, I have the same thing. I don't have it to that degree. I have other things, but I can totally relate. Today on the podcast, we have J.P. Cabrera, John Cabrera. John is a writer, a director, a performer, and a tech entrepreneur. And J.P. is just a a near and dear old friend of mine. Uh, We had sort of lost touch over the last decade or two, and we've reconnected. And I think when you listen to this interview, you're going to know exactly why I think he's so hilarious and special and wonderful. So please enjoy our interview with John Cabrera. Oh, interesting. Loved how you tied monetization right there at the end. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Yeah, well. 
Anyway, congratulations, John Cabrera. You survived theater school. I did, yeah. <laughs> so most most people that we talked to really haven't thought very much about theater school in the last 20 years. But you are really close with a bunch of people who you went to school with. So that might not be the case for you. Oh, it is the case. I, I really haven't thought much about theater school <laughs> at okay. all. I mean, I don't think any of us do. <laughs> We're, we're yeah. all, we're all, you know, I mean, we're all really close friends still. We see each other all the time and like might, we might throw out a theater school reference like once every three or four years. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because your relationship has totally evolved and it's, it's yeah. not based on theater school anymore. That not really. Sense. No. I mean, even after theater school, we like, you know, we, we, a bunch of us started a theater company together and then everybody went off to Los Angeles and then that our identity kind of was shaped by by the things that we were doing out here, either individually, like, you know, the shows that we were trying to, that we were on or that we were, that we were working. Um, yeah. That we were working on or the, the stuff that we were doing collectively, like, you know, making a short film or, 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 uh, or, you know, something doing a play. Um, well, we didn't really do any plays, but you know, yeah, you get it. I get it. I get it. Did you audition for a bunch of schools? Did you always know you want to go to a conservatory? What was that whole process? Okay. About? So I, so I went to a magnet school, uh, for commercial art. I auditioned for, uh, for a, a like Ottawa interviewed for a magnet school in Miami for commercial art that would take me away from my neck of the woods, um, and put me on the path to being an artist because as a kid I'd like to draw and, and, and all of that. And so I had like a little portfolio of stuff and we used that to get me into this magnet school. And I was there for ninth and 10th grade. Uh, my area of the city ninth grade actually was the last year of middle school, but in this other area of the city, it was the first year of high school. That was a little odd. Um, so all my friends were still in middle school and I was like going to this high school. I was there for ninth and 10th grade. Um, and I found very, I, I discovered very quickly that I was, that I was not anywhere close to as good of an artist as every other kid there in the class with me. And so that kind of bugged me a lot. You know, I just, I felt, I just didn't feel, I just didn't feel good enough. And while I would, and then I also like, you know, really missing my friends a, a lot, you know, because I was going to this other school and, but then, you know, after school and on the weekends, I was hanging out with all the people from my area and I was making new friends at the school, but it was just really, it was tough. And in my 10th grade, it, like in, in 10th grade, I took just randomly a drama class, um, just as one of the electives, like a create, like in ninth grade, I had taken a creative writing class and um, really liked the teacher. And then in ninth, in 10th grade, she was teaching a drama class. So I took her drama class and I just really fell in love with it and felt like I was really good at it. Mm -hmm. So that was a big thing, right? Because I felt like right. I wasn't very good at this thing that I was there, there, or I, it wasn't that I didn't think I was very good. I just didn't think I was nearly as good as any of these other people. So I just felt like I was at the back of the pack. But in this drama class, I, I really like, I felt like I was, I was good at it and, um, and I really enjoyed it. My sister also 
sort of side note to it, my sister is a, a, is a, was, well, is a dancer and was a, in ballet for a very long time. So she at this time was a little girl in ballet school and they were doing a production of The Nutcracker and they needed boys to play townspeople. So I did that and then got my first taste of like a massive auditorium of people applauding you, right? So that mixed with like this drama class that I was taking. And at the end of my my 10th grade year, I was like, I don't want to go here anymore. Like I want to go back to, I want to go back to like my real high school. And I, you know, I want to see all my friends and, and, and I kind of want to do theater now. And my mom, of course, who had pumped a lot of money into the whole art thing was disappointed, a little resistant at first, but then she was like, yeah, let's do it. So I moved back to, so I went back to my normal high school and I got really, really into that drama department there, which was like a really big kind of big deal. Like the school won a lot of, of awards, went to these big theater conferences and all of that stuff. So it was actually really like suddenly really exciting. And I created, there was this big little community that I, I um, sort of was a part of there. And so by the end of high school, I was just so clear that that's what I wanted to do. And my, my like, I was set on Juilliard, right? Like a lot of young, you know, high school kids that like, that was my thing. My sister at that point was already not, uh, she was already living in New York and she was dancing uh, at the School of American Ballet, which is right next door to Juilliard. So in my mind, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, perfect. I'm going to be like, go move to New York. And, and now my sister like, will be like right next door in the dorm room next to me and all of this stuff. Just like, really like imagine that. And so I, so I like audition. So then, and then I also got sort of getting like, you know, uh, I got DePaul sent something in the mail and Ithaca college sent something in the mail. And so there was a big, there was going to be like a big, uh, audition in New York city for all of those different schools. And so I, uh, and so, yeah, my mom, like, you know, we, we went to New York and, and uh, and auditioned for all of them, Juilliard included, which was like the one that I really wanted to get into. And <laughs> well, do you remember what you did? <laughs> yes, I do. That, that's why I'm laughing. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, for Juilliard, I had to I had to prepare a Shakespeare piece, and I think also a contemporary piece. For DePaul and Ithaca, it was just a contemporary piece. And so the contemporary piece that I picked was from, was a monologue from that play Equus, um, which like, you know, back then was just like, oh, that's super, you're, you're like really cutting edge there, you, you know, doing Equus, like every, every like third kid did Equus for <laughs> Dave DeSmalshin did Equus. I think it's come up actually three times. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I uh, did Equus, but then for my Shakespeare piece, um, I, I did Mark Anthony from Julius Caesar and, mm-hmm. uh, I went into my Juilliard audition and I did it and, um, I did it in a, <laughs> I did it in a, <laughs> I did it in a British accent. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, a very, very, very thick. <laughs> And affected <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I'm gonna just tell you right now, it was awesome. Like, I'm sorry, I'm like, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say it. It was a 
damn good monologue and it was awesome and I was in it to win it and and I and it was a really thick British accent and I finished it and they looked at me and they were like um very nice uh could you please do it again without the British accent (laughs) (laughs) and that's exactly what they did to Dave. That's so funny. That's exactly what they did. And, and they so did I did it again without the British accent, which of course I couldn't do. Like, like I, like I had practiced right. it so much with a British accent that suddenly I was 18 year old John Cabrera, insecure, nervous John Cabrera as Mark Anthony. Like, you know, I can't even remember the the actual word, but just imagine me, my voice, not doing anything Shakespeare in any way, delivering this. And it was just like, <laughs> it was just disastrous. You know, I came out of there, I was like, you know, all of these months that I had been preparing and so excited and convinced that I'm going to Juilliard, my sister, I'm going to be right there. And, um, and I was just crushed. And then, of course, like, you know, they put the the list up on the wall. That's the first, you know, it was my first experience with a list up on the wall kind of thing. And did not see my name on there and was just like, just crushed. And and then. Was that callbacks? Was that so did they do callbacks within yeah, that audition yeah. or was it just people? On no, the no, list they did callbacks within that audition. I wasn't on the list of callbacks even. Right. Like it was it was really like. Yeah like the Brit, the British guy that I did, like that guy probably could have that gotten guy, onto the list. That guy but graduated. They were yeah, <laughs> <I got> graduated. <laughs> but, um, but John Cabrera was not on that list. And so, uh, so I was, you know, I mean, yeah, of course I, you know, I was sad and, um, you know, I, I like walked like, like back to the hotel where my mom was waiting and I was just like, got there. I think I like just broke down in tears like immediately Um, And then I think it was either the next, I think it was the next day or or something like that was the bigger audition that was like the consortium audition that was going to be like for all of these different schools, which Ithaca was one and DePaul was another. Jim Ostelhoff was the, was the person auditioning me. And um, I did Equus and, and it was good. And I, you know, it was good. And he, and I could tell that he really liked it. And, and, um, and uh, I think he gave me a note you know, to adjust it. And I took the note and I did it. And, you know, I mean, that, that piece works really well for like an 18 year old kid, you know, like it just like, it, it fit yeah. me. I think that if you had any chops as an actor and you did a young monologue from some play where you were playing your age, you probably had a really, really, really like a much higher chance of getting, um, getting into those schools. than if you tried to do, well, Mark Anthony from from Julius Caesar. Um, so uh, and then and then I got back and you know and then all of the kind of like sadness of like the of the um, of the Juilliard thing was replaced by like a real a lot of excitement because then I got a, a, an acceptance letter from uh, from both Ithaca and um, and DePaul and in fact the person from Ithaca was really pushing hard for me to go there. They really wanted me to go there. Um, but it was the difference between going to like a little small, to like a small college town 
versus going to a city. And I went and I visited Chicago and I was just like, it was sort of the closest thing to what I imagined my life would be if I was living in New York. And, and so I was just like, I want, I, I just, I want to go here. Like, this is great. When you were talking about saying that your audition was good and like you would to this day, you, you really stand behind it. That just brought on this flood of memories of conversations that I would have with you where you'd just be arguing with me about a note that somebody gave. <laughs> oh yeah. That well that has not changed. Separated and belabored. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what that's I was me. gonna ask. That's me. Have you have no, you uh, no, no, that's have me. you that's like my life that's That's, my life that's 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 not even just a creative thing that's like my life with my wife on 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 issues on domestic issues um yeah i mean that's me i'll never i'll never change i'll always be somebody that's constantly like (laughs) pushing back it's good to know who you are it's good to just you know yeah self be self-possessed so then when you were so you really weren't the typical kid who like wanted to be an actor your whole life and had a bunch of experience with it. So then what did you think day one, week one, what did you think of the training of the theater school? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I guess when I first got there, I was really enamored by it all. Um, you know, I'd never really had that kind of training or that kind you know, that, I'd never had that experience. So, you know, in high school, it was like, you know, you do some, a little bit of like theater game stuff, but mostly you're like, mostly you're doing plays. You're getting ready from, for some big play, you know? So it just felt very, um, I don't know. I, I felt like I was a part of some special club of, of, of people who are, who had this like secret for how to become an artist and, and, you know, all of these different, all these different teachers at the, at the school all had like one little, one little piece of that larger secret to give you. Um, I, I was quite enamored by it. I'd say in, in that, in that first, uh, in that, well, let's just, let's say maybe that first trimester or two. Um, then, then I'd say by the end of the, of the year, things start to get a little wacky. Um, maybe even like by the second trimester, you're starting to like, you're starting to get a little worn out by the repetition of it all. You're starting to get a little annoyed by the the same tricks that you're seeing all of your your fellow classmates doing. And then, of course, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this with everybody, but then when the warning aspect oh, of it yeah. all, then 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 things just start to really get wonky and people start really competing with one another whether they're consciously competing or unconsciously competing it just starts to get really really weird and that first year i mean you know they cut like you know you know when we were there they cut so many people and a lot of those people were just like you know like they were part of the wackadoodle of it all right there were just some people there that were just like what are what is your what are you doing here or like not even from a talent perspective more like like where did you come from right um and and then yeah there was just like so much weirdness and i think that that you know to me it felt like a little bit like their m their mo for who they chose was like kind of throwing a lot at the wall and seeing what sticks 
And so you also start to feel like, gosh, am I, am I just like something they've just thrown at the wall and like, will I stick or not? Right. Rather than, rather than was I actually chosen because they thought I was truly, truly talented, you know? Um, so that kind of gets in your head a bit. Um, you know, outside of the theater school, remember, we're also going to a university, which had its own separate dynamic outside of the theater school, right? Which is like the dormitories filled with like right. lots of people who are not theater school um, related and all of the community and interaction that you have going there. Um, the proximity, the distance, the sheer distance from those dormitories to the theater school. Um, I came from my, I was from Miami. So I had never experienced a winter like that in my oh. life. Um, so, and we should tell we should tell our audience that the winter that we started yeah. theater school was the worst winter Chicago had had in twenty in years, 20 and there was multiple years. multiple days where the news would say, "Don't, don't go outside." Just yeah, that, that it's, that, no, that it's like hazardous for your health. Yeah, and like we, that I you remember could, trucking to music, music to movement to music with our with like a like a self portrait we had to bring in, and it was like snowing. I was like, "What? <laughs> Who cared? What? Yeah." Well, um, I had got, I had yeah. developed this habit of like taking my showers in the morning before school, like in, all throughout high school. And, and, uh, and so I would always kind of arrive to school with like slightly wet hair and, and, and at the theater school, the distance that I, you'd have to walk, I would arrive to the theater school, like with a helmet, like my head was completely <laughs> My, my head was completely frozen, you know? It was like, I mean, that's just one example of just, like, the weirdness that I was thrown into. Like, I used to, like, walk into in, in school with, like, ice all over my head, um, which I'd never really experienced that before. Um, and uh, and so, I mean, it was just all wild, you know? And, and like, I experimented with drugs for the first time in my life uh there that fresh that first year um i had a i had a mental breakdown um in the la in the second half i guess of of that year i um that was actually um that was actually inspired or or it was i <laughs> jump started i guess by the drugs that i had been taking um i uh i i was i i was re like my roommate at the time who uh who just i became really really close to during my years at, at the school certainly during that first year but um throughout most of of my time at the school um he was not at the theater school he was in the music school um but he sort of opened me to so many like like music like i just like my whole like music renaissance began like i i'm like some kid from miami suburbs like all I listened to was top 40s. And suddenly I'm like listening to the Smiths and I'm listening to all of this like Aphex Twin and all of this like new stuff that's just like changing my world and start smoking pot. And then at a certain point decide that I wanna start doing mushrooms. <laughs> and I just like, just my first mushroom experience, I just chow down like a huge satchel of mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> And you didn't have anybody telling you how to do it. No. So oh suffice it to say, God. I had a horrendous trip that then 
sort of broke me mentally for the rest of that year. I, I, I was, I had like high anxiety all year. I was really like, like just having all of these like new thoughts about like just all these existential thoughts that I'd never had before as this like kid from the suburbs, like, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And, and was also having a very difficult time um, even incorporating any of this new stuff into my, into the education there at the school. Like I, I was actually having a hard time I was having a hard time functioning really. And, and, um, and I was in this, sh I should add, because I feel like this kind of is related somehow, but I was in Rick Murphy's uh, improv class, right? You either had Avcali or you had Murphy right. and I had Murphy and Rick was a very intimidating man. I know that people who were, who had Avcali said something similar about him, but Rick was, was, intimidating i feel in a different way because i developed a relationship with Avkali as well um which was sort of related to um i i, I got to know him in my set in, in the second year but i with rick I, I really felt i a lot of those feelings that i mentioned that i was feeling when i was back at that commercial arts school a lot of that was coming back in my in my class with rick i, I felt like i wasn't good enough for him that I, you know, like, and it really was getting me down, like in a, in a bad way. And then I, you add to it this whole like mental breakdown thing that I had. And I was just, I was just, I felt like I was just worthless um, in regards to like the school and convinced that I would be cut um, because I'd gotten warned and, um, and I just couldn't find my stride at all. And then at the end of that year, you do your first scene, right? right? Because up until then, all you're doing is improv, which I just couldn't do. I couldn't get my head into it. You know, I just, I, I always was too, really? just thinking too much, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Like at the, by that first year, it gets better right. though. Um, so <laughs> at the end of that year, we do scenes and I picked this scene, this Sam Shepard scene from this kind of small play, the small Sam Shepard play that I can't remember what it was called uh, right now, but it was this really weird abstract play. And me, Eric Slater and I did it. And it was super weird and super crazy. And partly maybe because of how sort of messed up I was mentally at the time, I just... I just clicked into it, like clicked into it in a way that was just like the first thing that I did there at the school in the full year that I'd been there that, that I thought was like really impressive. And I felt it. And Rick was like, whoa. And later he called me to his office and he basically told me like in no, in, 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 in like, no subtle terms he said like I, I like you'd be gone if it wasn't for that scene i did not think that you had that in you like right which wow. kind of was a, was a little freaky to hear um but that you know it was sort of that was also i learned rick murphy's way of complimenting people like, through through like you know through a sort of strange uh i don't think he was trying to be mean he's just he's so frank he, on that stuff i think he was he was uh, being honest so the next year, uh, you know, that's the year of the scenes and Rick Murphy chose, like chose me to be 
in his in his workshop, the one that you know in in the one that he was doing, which was like also like oh my gosh, like I thought he he didn't like me and. You know, and it was really that scene that I did at the end of his first year that got me to do that. That was the adding machine. Oh, I was in that. Yes. Right. And you remember, so the adding machine, and then I had that monologue, that like that monologue, that big monologue there. And, um, and he, and, and he was really, really pleased with what I did there so much so that he, in front of everybody, like kind of gushed at my performance, which got me super embarrassed, you know? But Avkali saw the adding machine and then came up to me afterwards and was like, I want you to join my improv first year improv class and come in. Right. And of course, I'm thinking I'm not good at improv. Like I like I that's what that was the part that I sucked at. You know, it wasn't until the scene came in. I did. But I was so like, you know, excited that he that he wanted me to be a part of that, that, of course, I did it. Yeah. And it was in Av Kali's class that I under that I started to understand what improv actually was. And I actually kind of like started doing like these really great um improv scenes and whatnot. I don't I don't think I ever really loved like found a love for improv, but I certainly suddenly understood it that I I didn't really understand it um during that first year with Rick. Were you the husband in Adding Machine? The guy, the main zero. Guy. Um, I was, I was Mister, I was Mister. Z- well, we were all Mister Zeros. Like there were like five Mister Zero. Like he basically took Mister oh, Zero and he broke it into all of these different things. And I got, I got Mister Zero's big monologue, which I mean, I'm, yeah. I'll be honest. Like I kind of lucked out there, right? Because I got to like, I got to just chew up the scene, right? Like I got to do, like I had. Had any of the other guys there gotten it? Jeff Brown got a Mr. Zero. Like if they'd gotten that, they would have also gotten to like completely chew up the scene and like just, you know, made waves there. So that was like, I was sort of lucky there. I think that Rick gave me that largely because of the scene from the year before. I also got the fixer, which was this other like weird like character that appears in there. And that was also super fun and super stylized. Um, but yeah, uh, that what was... I remember, can I just interject? What I remember about your Mr. Yeah. Zero, it was heartbreaking. There was something yeah. heartbreaking about it in the best possible. Yeah, because way. yeah, because it's the part of the play where Mr. Zero is like is like begging. He's like he's like begging for his existence, really, right? Because the adding machine's about how like you know sort of technology's coming in and taking away everybody's purpose yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So it's like it's this like monologue, and he's like begging for his <sighs> existence and. Yeah. And, um, and I guess I was, I, 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 I've, I think I've always been able to like tap into that, into that, um, sense of desperation and self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I have always wanted to do that play, by the way. I, I, I stand that play. You know, it's so a great much. time to do something like that, right? Like the, 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 the time, like, I think that that play was written, during the expressionist uh, period as yes, a large response to industrialization and all of the effects that it was having on society and the workforce. And we're seeing, a me- and that was like turn of the century, right? Now we're turn of the new century and we're seeing like almost this like mirroring of what happened a hundred years uh, ago happening with, with um, information technology and the internet and, 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 um, and how once again, you know what it means to 
what what the workforce means is changing and what your place in the workforce is and is changing and and economic um disparity between you know classes and whatnot so i feel like i feel like somebody could do well you could do like a faithful rendition of it but i think you could also probably do some sort of like interpretation like new interpretation of it or maybe there's even an opportunity for like a new revision of of it somebody like takes the old play and and writes a new play where they just inject it all of that like adding machine stuff with like internet stuff instead like tech startups and all of that hmm. oh and now it's in the public domain because it's, it's yeah that's correct yeah it's from the 20s so it would be in the public domain yeah hmm. that's very good <laughs> I, I i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about show besides the adding machine, uh, other shows that you did, what your experiences, good, good and bad and ugly were of the other shows. Uh, let's see. Um, I did Detective Story, which was which was another workshop. Um, that I thought that that was uh, that was an enjoyable experience. I did. Um, I did. A Nick Bowling piece, uh, which was the visit. Yeah. Um, we and I. That's crazy. We were in a bunch yeah, of shows. You guys, yeah. Did, yeah all the visit. Shows uh, the visit was. I don't remember what I played in the visit. It was a very ensemble show, but I really liked the show. From like a, from just like I, I, I like the writing and I just like the concept. Everything about that show kind of geeked me out, even though I don't think I had any role to play in it that was substantial like i think i want to say like eric slater got like the lead role in that or, or somebody got the lead role in that that like a like maybe russell harden or something and and Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie welty had the the main role and then i think everybody else was just like townsperson or something like that uh which was a trend by the way uh, we all know this it was a huge trend at the school it was like two people who would get the actual role in the play and everyone else is the ensemble right. Um, problem, I think that was a that was a big problem. That's a problem. That, that I think soured a lot of people, um, uh, and, and that was I think a problem in choosing the plays, right? Like what plays were chosen, and that goes down to like why the plays were chosen, and then and then when you sort of like take you take that path down, it really leads to a professor who wanted to do that play right. you know perhaps prof- professionally and like and so they've got this great little pool of guinea pigs that they can use to um yeah. to justify their their desire to do something um in a professional sense that's that's my sort of uh you know in hindsight looking back at it my interpretation of that oh, whether i'm right or not there's no question it was a problem i think that um that so many plays plays had these big ensembles with like two characters and even more so that a lot of the same people were playing those two characters right uh people who had a look about them you know that really lended well to leading man or leading woman right um so uh there was that um molly sweeney that was a, a a play that i did that i absolutely loved um colleen cosgrove and i were in that show together and i forgot who the other person was but it was a i want to say it was a three-person play it was just three people doing monologues and the monologues themselves sort of tied the story together about a woman who uh who was having 
cataracts removed, who had cataracts removed from both of her eyes that had made her permanently blind her entire life. And this new, this new surgery would give her sight again. And doing so uh, essentially made her crazy, like made her crazy because she wasn't prepared for all of the visual stimuli that came with um, sight after not having it had it her entire life. And, um, and I, I want to say that I, my character, the character I played was the doctor who did it. So there was like a lot of, you know, a lot of similar like themes of regret and self-loathing and all of this stuff that like, I felt like, you know, maybe it was that, that crazy thing that happened to me in my freshman year of school that allowed me to really like just tap into that stuff really, really well. So, um, and then, you know, and and came out of that, that show feeling like I had done something, um, really impressive that, 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 that affected people. And of course that made me feel good. Um, Gina, you and I were in a show together, which the name of it, it I want to, it, it totally eludes me, but it was where you and I met actually. It was like, it was where you and I really became friends. Um, it was called Lo- the lovers, I think, or, or something like that. With the British. Woman. Yes. With we, exactly. I can't remember her name. She was French. She was actually French and British. I, I she, cause I remember she would speak yeah. French. I mean, she was I mean, she was speaking English most of the time, so, and it was very British. But like, but she also had her the, her husband yeah. was French, and um, oh. and she and we we did that together. Um, that was an interesting that was an interesting play because uh, that was a that was a workshop. Um, so of course, workshops were like you know. Or a sec- they were second or third class plays, right? They were like, they were what you did not want to get when you walked right. up to that, you know, to that, <laughs> that list on the inside of the, yes. of the door. The um, and pool. they called it the workshop, the, wor- pool. the workshop pool. It was just absolutely awful. Even just calling it that, right? Like I mean, the workshop God. pool just was like, just awful. Like the cesspool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and I remember, you know, like always, coming up to the, getting up to the door, seeing that I wasn't on a main, in a main stage show, that I was in the workshop pool, that I was it wasn't even going to be a workshop that was in the black box. It was going to be in a in an elementary school classroom, and uh, and it was called the Lovers. And you know, I was so I just walked into that into that um, into that experience, just you know, as bitter as I had been about any of the other ones that I did, but. Um, that director was really infectious. She was such a sweet woman and the play was cute and quirky. And I, Anne, her name was Anne. Anne. That's right. Anne. Oh, shoot. I forgot the last name, but. And she directed for timeline, I think. Cause I, her name has actually come up once before and I Googled her after that. And it's she, yeah, she still like lives in Chicago and directs plays. She was wonderful. I, I remember that, that, that whole, experience and Wakefield. Wakefield. Right, 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 right. Um, uh, and anyway, um, she sort of turned this experience that like, you know, a lot, both you and I came into like annoyed and bitter at, right. Um, into the, into this just very, like, just very lovely, um, charming little, little play that, that, um, that we were all really proud of and that got like really great, um, feedback from everybody who saw it. And you and I became friends during that play. Like at first, I think we kind of, we bonded, we bonded in, you know, from that like annoyance of the whole experience perspective. And then 
by the end, we really loved to play and we really were having fun. We were like, you know, a lot of joking in the green room. Um, I remember. Uh, you know, the thing about the thing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but the thing that made that it was all about her. It was all about all the about director. And about it her. was all about the way she really and truly treated us like the children that we were <laughs> who needed nurturing. Yeah. Like it, it, that's what really what it came down to. I mean, I understand why the theater school had this very like tough love, whatever approach. Yeah. But at the same time, we really flourished with the nurture. Absolutely. Just saying. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I'll never forget. I'll never forget her husband came to opening night and he gave us a standing ovation just her husband like everybody <laughs> he, he stand, stood up and uh and um i forget the uh i forget the 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 french uh term that they use like to to uh, to lodge you with with praise from the audience but he was he was doing that and 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 i'll just never forget that and it all it sort of seemed to like be a part of that whole experience and and a part of that nurturing thing that you're talking about from her and uh and i really came out of that experience very surprised by um by it because i came into it very angry very very upset you... and and go ahead hmm? i was just no no gonna... no i was gonna say i think i think that like some of the of the faculty you know may have sort of may have sort of taken that like the you know, that experience that some of us had, like where we came in, you know, sort of bitter about something, but then came out like, mm. I think some faculty would say, well, that's, that was part of it. That was part of the, the, the tough love, you know, whatnot. I don't believe that that's true. Like, I, I actually think that it was Anne, you know, like, yeah. I think that, that, that it was something that we didn't often see there. Um, uh, you know, a lot of those workshops were we have to remember with MFA students. So they were students too, right? Like, so you were, how could you expect to get that kind of a nurturing experience from somebody who was only a few years older than you, right? So special people like Anne were not that common no. <laughs> uh, in, in, in the, in the uh, at least there in the 90s when, when we were there um, in, in terms of those shows. So I'll say that. Yeah, I was going to say before you jumped on, uh, Gina, I was just saying that my experience of John is that he was so, so funny that I said when we were on crew together that this gentleman is going to be on a Saturday Night Live. Like I, I, la I never laughed so hard in my life and crew was a miserable experience, miserable, but you made it tolerable because I knew every day. So I'm wondering, were you in shows where you got to showcase that later on? Like, you should have been the uh, star of the show. Really, I, I, not really. Uh. Not really. I mean, you know, first of all, like, I only was on the main stage twice. And one of those two times, I wasn't cast on the main stage. I was given a, a little, a little, like, small bit role in a main stage show. Uh, so, uh, so my, so uh, first day, my only main stage experience at that school was in the chorus of Merrily We Roll Along. What? That was my only one. Yeah. And that was the one where, Gene, I don't know if you remember, that was the one where you and I did, where you helped me do this photo shoot that I did because, because uh, Betsy Hamilton was the director 
and she had, you know, in, in, in the first week, we had like an assignment as a, as the cast, we had to come in and do some sort of a, some sort of a presentation to the rest of the cast about dreams and shattered dreams. She had, she had been, she, I remember she said like she was walking to, she was walking to the school one day and she looked over to the side and she saw a mirror that was shattered in the glass, in the grass. And, and that was the impetus for this assignment that we all have about broken dreams. And of course, at that point, I'm a, you know, I'm in my, my last year at the school, I haven't had any single chance to shine on the main stage. My last opportunity now here is in this Merrily We Roll Along thing as a chorus member, you know, which would literally was literally just person in the background dancing and, a, and, and singing in the, the chorus. Uh, and so I was just like, I'm like, OK, I'll give you broken dreams. I'm going to give you some. <laughs> and so I approached Gina. I approached Gina, who now we were like fast friends because we had like, you know, we had we'd gone through um, the lovers together. And and, and uh, we both, again, experienced the defeat of being in the in the workshop pool. Um, my reaction to that was a little different from Gina's, but <laughs> but it's okay. The cat's out of the bag. We already sold the break in the door. <laughs> okay, good. Um and uh and so I, I approached Gina, I was like, hey, I got an idea. Um I wanna do I want to do this photo shoot where I want to sort of um through a series of, of images, I want to recreate my experience discovering that I was cast in Merrily We Roll Along. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did this whole photo shoot with me like auditioning then me like yeah and then me like walking up to the door me looking to see where my name was then me like falling into the door sliding down the door <laughs> and then uh and then what i did is that I, I had those photos developed and then i printed them all onto white Fruit of the Loom t-shirts that I got from, you know, Kmart or wherever. And I put all of them on one after the other. And then I put like my main shirt over the top of it. And I showed up, you know, to that day and people were looking at me like, what's, what's wrong with that guy? Like there's something going on with JP as he put on some weight or, you know, because I was like really puffy, you know, and everyone was going around the room. They were going around the room doing their thing, you know, and everyone was looking at me like, because everybody's got like dioramas and oh big posters and all this stuff. And JP's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs and they're thinking, there's something up with JP. We don't know what it is. And, and also they're also, some of them are thinking JP didn't do it. Like he didn't do Like he, he, you know, once again, just didn't bring in his assignment and he's going to come up with some excuse, you know, for why he doesn't have his work, you know, cause that was also another trend with me is that a, I just didn't like doing homework. Um, and so they got to me and I stood up and I was oh like, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, broken dreams thing. And, you know, and I, I, I realize it's true that I do have a broken dream that I want to share with the class. Oh my God. And then I just proceeded to remove t-shirt after t-shirt 
<laughs> and threw the t-shirts to people in because everyone was dying laughing including betsy hamilton and they all wanted the t-shirts right like they, they were like they were me me you know so i'd like tossing people t-shirts across the room by the time we got to the end of it and like betsy was like on the floor and I mean, of course she knew what i was saying which was i really 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 don't want to be in this stupid <laughs> oh, show <my> <laughs> um, really? but she also couldn't deny that like Brilliant. You know, I, you know, that I, that I, well, that she walked, oh, that she, that she walked into that, that she walked into that, right? Yes. Um, oh, this is amazing. This is the best story I've ever, and I can't believe I didn't remember anything. I mean, I wasn't there for the presentation, but I, and now I remember yeah, taking yeah, the photos. We Brilliant. We went into the, Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and so that, and then, and then that show was, uh, you know, that show never, I would never say got like, you know, I never had like any epiphany, like, oh, wow, I should have, I, I shouldn't have given this such a, you know, a bad rap early on, given her such a hard time. It, you know, in the end, it was like, you know, I was in the course of Merrily We Roll On. It was, it, it was, it was pretty dumb. I don't think that I got much from that performance, but, but I really enjoyed my time goofing around on that show, <laughs> which it was my first main stage show. And I, I would have to imagine that this happened in every main stage show. Um, which was just like people like mooning each other from the like <laughs> from like the wings, you know, you know, just all kinds of weird stuff. Pass the penny, people like passing yeah. the penny across the stage, you know, things that you just didn't do. You didn't, you just didn't do them in the workshops because it just it was too small to yeah, to yeah, get you were done. In the yeah, and so there was no backstage. Really. Yeah, so that was my first opportunity to experience all that fun theatery goofiness that you get to experience at the Reskin. And that was very enjoyable. And I, I'm glad that I at least got to experience that once. I think there were some it, people somebody who- told, hmm? Somebody told us a story about you being, Bradley Walker told us, were you in Sisterly Feelings? That's the other one, which oh. I was not cast in. I was not cast in. That's the other one that I said. I've been on in two, but the only one I was cast in was Merrily We Roll Along. That was the only one that was like technically a part of my actual casting. Um, I played Major Lidget in Sisterly <laughs> Feelings, which is just a character who they talk a lot about throughout the play. And then at a certain point in the play, because there's like one of the six or three different, you know, outcomes of, of this is that they go to this race, that, that this big, like, this big outdoor lawn race that they've been talking about in previous in previous acts. And so if you happen to go in one of the directions, you actually get to see that race. And they've been talking about Major Lidget throughout the piece. And if you happen to see that one thing with the race, Major Lidget has a very, very small like role where he just runs slowly. He's like an old man. He runs slowly across the stage while he's being taught while they're asking him questions he doesn't actually say anything he just he just runs little old man runs with his like you know his jersey on and his like you know marathon number and he crosses the, the stage and it's funny you know it's a funny moment because he's a little old guy and and whatnot and sean i auditioned for that i auditioned for the for the role and was called back for the role that sean um got got uh and you know, like all, like all of the main stage shows, you know, you, I was disappointed that I didn't get on a main stage show. And that was a, that was a role that was sort of in my wheelhouse to play. 
but Sean was in, you know, he was a, an upperclassman and, and, you know, he, I, Sean had also not gotten any, you know, really great ca- casting. So it made sense that he got that. And Sean and I were already developing a pretty strong friendship. And so they actually petitioned Bill Burnett. They actually said, cast JP as Major Legit. Like he, like he would be great. You know, he's really good at characters at doing like, you know, like impress, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, which sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, Jen or asking earlier, did I get a chance to play any of that kind of like charactery stuff that I had been doing that was a more comedian? This would probably be the best example of it and that and it didn't even come from casting i actually was in cast in another show that that wow. um that trimester and i was in that other show and um and so it was that and then i did this little small part as as major legit which was fun because you know i got to i got to be in a show with all my friends like you know lee was in that show and sean was in it i was sean and i were in the same dressing room so we got you know I, we, we put on the make- makeup together and unlike everybody else i only had one particular act that i was in which wasn't always going to right. be right so i'd have to get all my makeup on get ready and see whether or not the the coin flip went my way and if it did then i'm on if it didn't take off all the makeup but there was something actually kind of fun about that too so i like i actually got into the whole i i got into the to the fun of just the whole theater experience there mostly because it was my friends and we could all laugh about it and if i didn't go on that was part of the fun and then afterwards we all went out to a bar and 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 stuff so that was actually I, i'd say that was a that was definitely a highlight show even though my role in it was, you know, it was basically nothing really. You'll have to listen to the episode with Bradley Walker. He tells yeah. a sweet story about you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Bradley was in that. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. He had to wear the short shorts for running. Yeah. Bradley well, was also in, in Merrily We Roll Along, if I remember correctly. So it was like Brad- yeah, so Bradley, Bradley, Eric Slater and Louise Rosette. That those mm-hmm. were the three like, those were the th- those were the three characters. <laughs> everybody right. everybody right. else was just set dressing, basically. Right. Oh. Well, I I, I want to be mindful of the time. I know you probably have to go, but just really quickly, I mean, you you've, we didn't even get to talk at all about what you've done since you graduated, and it's so we'll we'll put it in the show notes, and everybody who's listening to this either knows you or knows you from t- television. Um, so. You know, we'll have to maybe have a part two for the conversation. But what are? Tell us what you're doing now. Right now, uh, right now, I'm actually working on a. I'm I'm working on a tech startup. I'm I'm actually trying to. I'm I'm building a tech product that um, a platform for collective myth making. So I'm trying. Yeah, I'm. So I'm trying to build. Cool. I'm trying to build a platform where communities can come together and build their own Star Wars sized universes together rather than like pump all of their creative energy into the IP. Yeah. The IP of Warner brothers and, and Disney, right? Like just like billions of dollars worth of value through memes and cosplay and fan fiction is basically like just going right into into all of these these um, 
big these big IP that that the fans really have no control over and certainly don't um, see any participation, you know, in. And so I, I several years ago, I, I started getting obsessed with this idea that like that all of that energy could be focused towards them building their own, you know, their own Star Wars, their own Lord of the Rings, their own Harry yeah. Potter, and that they that they um, collectively, uh, you know, collectively control, uh, you know, control the creative direction of it, its its evolution, but also can participate in in its uh, monetary success if it were to have that. And so I've been on this like multi-year journey to understand what that would look like, how you could ever incentivize a group of people to um, to work together um, on something like that. Um, you know, I mean, a group, I, I imagine that this platform could potentially Ha be you know it could potentially attract as many people as are on Twitter right how would you ever incentivize and track everybody's contributions to understand like what everybody's value is um, that took me into the world of blockchain and into the world of cryptocurrency which is you know a technology that I think has a lot of promise in that regard and um, this past year I've learned a bunch of like uh, learned a bunch of like coding languages and 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 have actually built some actual tech um and and some like prototypes and and whatnot um that's amazing where are, is there a place where people can stay updated on what's <clears throat> happening with that not not yet um because i haven't really made it um really public yet but once i start making it public um, yeah, I mean, I have a website that I'm that I'm that's still behind the curtain that I'm going to be releasing that will allow people to like stay up to date through through an email list. Um, I'm going to be doing a I'm really into this idea of doing sort of a regular clubhouse room um, in which the the first starter world that we're going to be creating together that I'm going to um, use clubhouse to um, to introduce that world through these like weekly like kind of like his like fake history lessons of the world like geeky nerdy history lessons of the world um and um and that hopefully will attract people who want to um to write uh create content in that world join that the community that will essentially be building that thing from the ground up and um and then uh i'm working with um I'm working with a few really cool, talented people who I pitched the idea to that like geeked out about it that have skills and everything from publicity to, um, to JavaScript. Um, and right now I'd say like 2021, I'm sort of dubbing as the team, that is the year of team building. It's the year that I'm like looking for folks who like the idea, who dig it and think that they can bring value in some way. And there's so many ways that people can bring value to this and kind of come in as a sort of team member from the ground up. Like I said, everything from like publicity and, you know, economic, I'm looking for like, you know, I'm right now looking for somebody who's like an economist who wants to come in and be like, okay, you basically are building a little, a little, you know, in-game economy. Let, let me make sure that you are doing it right. And it doesn't collapse, you know, or you don't have overinflation or any of these, like, you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of having to figure all, all of this stuff out myself and become a sort of jack of all trades. But as we know, a jack of all, all trades is typically a master of of no trades. <laughs> and so at this point, I want to, you know, I've been doing a lot of it, you know, getting it to where it is um, by myself. But at this point, I'm, I'm going to need some masters to come in and, and, and own some parts of this. That's what I've been doing now. That, my, you know, you, that's exciting. Yeah. You, you know, that my, like my, 
uh, my past for, you know, like the last 20 years has been like a smattering of entertainment industry stuff from like, I was, I had a role on Gilmore Girls for five years. And then I started writing, um, you know, f- uh, like for, for studios and, and television and did that for about six or seven years. And, um, and now I'm really obsessed with this and I'm trying to make this, this, this work. Obsessed is this whole time we've been talking. It's because what what I usually do when when we talk to people that we know, which has been almost everybody, um, is I kind of like pull out a theme, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking like, I when I encounter your spirit, I feel it so completely. But I was having a hard time naming it, and that's what it is. It's it's obsession in a good way. It's obsession with with your imagining of how the world can be um your obsession with self-betterment your obsession with like a kind of a rigorous standard for how things should be Uh, yes and and your um you know your obsession with telling people when it's not up to (laughs) to standards i remember you said to me you said something to me a long time ago i think it was during the lovers you said that that um that i was a i was really you said I'm a very, very perceptive person, but that it's not because I'm very perceptive of other people. It's because I'm a perceptive of myself. That you said that, mm-hmm. that it was sort of your way of saying like, you don't really pay attention to other people. You pay attention <laughs> to yourself, but somehow through your constantly observing yourself and observing mm-hmm. the problems in yourself, you sort of figure out how to engage other people. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I mean, you were 20 years old. Yeah, of course. It's a much different story now. And I'm so glad to have you. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!